Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5 with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So people may have saw us tease that you were in Philadelphia and people who are listening know that I live here. And we so hung out. To answer- and we hung out in person, you guys. Which rarely it, happens, even though we've known each other for eight years. Eight years now? <laughs> yeah, seven or eight years now we've known each other. And I think we've probably hung out a handful of times. Mm-hmm. And it had been like two years since we saw each other in person. Well, to be fair, there was a pandemic, so. Because of the pandemic, that's <laughs> a big piece of it. We were so pumped. So Dana was up here for Expo. Mm-hmm. share us with that and so we got to go on friday morning to go get fritter friday at, at okie dokie donuts, donuts which can confirm christina has not just been like tooting their horn it's actually very good yeah because i was in philly for natural products expo east which is this really cool event where usually thousands of different brands in the natural products and health and wellness space will come to showcase all of their things to retailers and health practitioners. And it was really fun. I brought back a lot of samples. I will do an update on those probably on my Instagram, maybe on my blog next week. But uh, alas, I am moving this week. So that is going to have to wait, which brings me to my recommendation for this week of There is this company that was also at Expo, but I have worked with them in the past. Um, They're a Canadian company called Evive Smoothies. And they, in English, it looks like Evive. They're these really cool little smoothie packs that are in your freezer that are just like these little, it's kind of like a pop-out thing inside of it with just little smoothie cubes. And you just put it in your blender and you put it with, I do almond milk, and then you just blend it up. So I have been basically living off of those because I don't know about you all, but if I'm moving, I refuse to go grocery shopping because I don't want to bring new groceries (laughs) to the new place because I'll have to pack them up with everything else. And I did get a question about this on Instagram uh, over the weekend is can the general public go to Expo? You can, but it's pretty expensive. I think it's about $300 or $400 for three days to go. To be fair, you definitely get more than that in the amount of free product that you get. Um, But as a health practitioner, I get to go for free. So that is how I go. I am not dropping $400 on a two slash three day conference that doesn't even have panels and things that I go to or that I don't get continuing education for. Yeah, next year we'll go together. Yeah. Fun. I make Ellie basically the exact same <laughs> smoothie every time. And poor thing, she loves them. I'm like, man, you have no idea the branch out of smoothies that are out there for this small child. Yeah, but they're only my $15 idea of making a it, piece. Yeah, my idea of making it fancy is buying the mixed berry <laughs> frozen exactly. Bag of- speaking of why we want free food and things that are easy um my oven broke and like not just like broke but like it's 
dangerous to even use because it started smelling like gas and it was leaking. We noticed that when it was on, it was leaking gas. So we were immediately like, well, we need to shut this off. Um, So our oven is broken and it's not going to be, the new one's not going to be delivered for like three weeks or something. It's not until like mid-October. So that's definitely thrown a wrench in our like meal preppery kind of vibe because I'm a big fan of quick sheet pan style meals especially during the week so that's been kind of a thing and so what I've been doing in the food realm is I'm a big fan of this local meal delivery service called Reap my friend Ajwa and her now husband Zach um, are like the brains and Um, behind the whole operation and they make the most amazingly delicious and flavorful they call them glow bowls like they're salads and they're just awesome and so I refer them to a lot of my clients especially when you're having a hard time with like those mid midday meals like lunch always seems to be a problem for a lot of people and so I went up there grabbed a couple of their their different bowls they have like noodle bowls they have salad bowls they have grain bowls they have all of the things and then they even have like like their mini mart has different types of grocery like items too and so they'll have um I got this butternut squash and apple soup that they made and it was just absolutely amazing so I had that so it's been really nice having something that I can just heat up um because you know I don't have an oven but I also did just get an air fryer um for the first time it's part of our toaster oven which was like our mini solution to not having an oven over the next like three weeks or a month or so so um I've never used an air fryer before so So I need everyone's recommendations your air fryer favorite recipe recommendations I would also love them yeah, slide into the DMs, send me some recommendations. I'm going to post on Instagram and if you want, like, message us here. But it's been pretty awesome. Before we get to today's episode, which is going to be with Dr. Alexis Conison, we're going to be talking about health at every size myths, intuitive eating myths, and mindful eating with chronic health conditions, which we're super excited about, um, and her new book that came out this summer, The Anti-Diet Revolution the diet-free revolution. I will edit that. Um, <laughs> but before we get there, we Christina has another recommendation that we wanted to talk about last week, but we're going to talk about it this week. Um, and it is all about how your relationship with exercise can be a mirror to your relationship with food. Yeah, so this kind of all stemmed from, I don't know, people who have been listening to our to me on the podcast when we had our whole month around movement is it's I've had a really complex relationship with exercise for a really long time and I always kind of put it off in a lot of ways um mainly because I've always looked at it either as I was an athlete and I was doing it for the love of that 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 sport that I was doing of dance um and swimming and then the other part was I I would do it after the fact as mainly more of like a eating, like a a weight loss driven thing. And so I never really figured out how to just do movement for just pure joy. And so I had kind of like this, um, and I knew this, right? I knew that my relationship with 
exercise was complex and it was very deeply tied to my relationship with food for a long time. But this avenue of it has been a longer journey to kind of work through, um, more so than my relationship with food. I think it's, it, it's taken longer. Um, and I think it's ongoing. Like I wouldn't even say that it's resolved (laughs) in any way, shape or form, but I, I did have this kind of aha conversation that actually stemmed from a conversation with a client of mine and Dana and I, it has inspired, um, a podcast episode that we're going to do, um, in the future, I think in a couple weeks, maybe even. Um, and so, and that's really this aha moment around thinking about my movement as being this idea of being foundational self-care, the same way that I look at food as being a foundational piece of my self-care. Um, and I've always looked at thinking about food from not just like, um, a lot of my, relationship with food and how this has mirrored in exercise was around reframing my relationship with food to being more of something that is of nourishment and of um of joy and all the different components that go into that and I noticed that I wasn't doing that in my movement the same way and so I'm starting to get a little bit more intentional about movement and I downloaded the Peloton app and I was, this was a, I, for everyone listening, some people on here are like, she just got this now for the, <laughs> the first time. And then other people on here listening might be like, she downloaded the Peloton app. Like that's a safe space for someone. Um, and I think both are totally valid kind of responses. And I definitely fall into the category of the of part B people where it's like, is this really a safe place for me to be? And after a lot of work around my relationship with movement, I think it is so far. It's been really great. I've been really loving it. Um, I haven't, one thing that I really do like about it is that I can pick and choose what I'm in the mood to do. And there's no set quote unquote program that you have to stick to. They have those options, but you can steer away from them if they're triggering for you. Like, it's very triggering for me to do something like um, couch to 5k type stuff like that's super triggering. Um, but doing like um, and but doing like offset kind of workouts is kind of fun for me and being able to look at it from that perspective and seeing different things. And I've noticed too, at least so far with the coaches that I've taken classes with, um, there's no mention of food there's been no mention of weight weight loss burning of calories burning of food nothing like that I can't say for the whole app because it's massive and there's a lot going on um on there but from my little section of it that I have explored it's been a really safe and really wonderful place for me to explore um my relationship with exercise in a much deeper way and start being more intentional and feeling like it's a safe place, an accessible place for me to do it, right? Like it's kind of nerve wracking to go and take a class somewhere, but I can go do it at home, which is nice. And I didn't even buy the bike. I also want that to be known too. I don't have the bike at home. Um, I'm purely using the app only. Um, And so I wanted to share that because I think people can relate to it. And it's complicated 
our relationship with movement and our relationship with food. And there's such a strong, when you start to dive into it, there's such a strong mirror between the two things. But I've been talking for a long time now about this. (laughs) Dana. Well, I would say, you know, it really depends on, there are going to be different tools depending on where you are in your journey, right? So like if I would say, if you're really struggling with your relationship with exercise, this probably isn't the place to start. Just like if you're really struggling with your relationship with exercise and your relationship with food and your body image, it's not a great idea to go into certain group exercise classes that you don't know if it's safe, right? When you're in that stage, you want to enter a place, whether that's just doing things on YouTube or on an app or hiring a um, like a non-diet intuitive fitness person, and we will link to all of those episodes that we did back in April of this year, 2021, depending on when you are listening to this, right? Um, but there is something to be said for like, you once you get to a certain point in your relationship with exercise, you can also enter spaces that are not exclusively body positive or anti-diet and still be okay. But you have to build up a certain amount of armor before you can do that and resilience. So to, to for example, right, like I am a member of a functional training gym, what used to be a CrossFit gym, you know, that's not necessarily a safe space for people who do what we do, right? It depends on where you are in your relationship with food and your relationship with exercise, right? And every everyone is going to have a different experience. For example, when I first started doing CrossFit, I was deep in my eating disorder, but then I learned eventually to care more about, oh, I'm more interested about getting stronger and learning how to do this than I am in shrinking the size of my body, right? And I realized that I couldn't, do well in this sport or you know even with just going to the gym if I wasn't eating you know or whatever I was doing in my eating disorder so that was actually a helpful part for me at the same time depending on the gym that you go to and this goes for all yoga studios and all different extra fitness spaces really depends on the environment where you go you know if you go to Orange Theory for example super unsafe Mm. space for all of this, which I can say across the board because they're so focused on calories and they're focused on earning and burning your food and all of this stuff. And it's just like, oh my God, no, I cannot, you know, that was just something that I had experienced when I, I did like a trial month there to see if I would like it. Absolutely did not. And this was only, I mean, it was pre pandemic. So I guess that was like two years ago at this point, but even now where I am with a very peaceful relationship with food and exercise and you know, everything is much more neutral. It wasn't that I was getting triggered. I was more horrified that it was like, this still exists. Like what, you know, it's just causing so much damage. Um, but just to say that you can find a safe space in many different places, even within something that could be triggering for other people, right? Depending on where you are. So like The Peloton app is working super well for Christina. That doesn't mean that it'll work well for everybody. Going to this gym works super well for me, even though there are people and coaches who will make comments that really piss me off sometimes, but I'm not there as a coach. I'm not there in a place of authority and teaching and everything like that. So it's not my place to get up on a pedestal and be like, look at all the damage you're doing to people. You know, that's, 
something that we do on this podcast. <laughs> That's something that we do and we help in our individual client sessions and group sessions and everything like that. But it's not our job nor our responsibility to try and fix everyone all the time, especially when the people that are in those spaces and giving that advice are not ready to hear it. And at the end of the day, that's just going to be more frustrating and more exhausting for you. So just create your own bubble and know what your limits are. I know there was this one moment and I did one of the the runs on the Peloton app and there was this one part where she said something that Christina three years ago definitely would have taken to heart. And But Christina Corrente was just like, oh, I can reframe that in my mind. And so I, I really do believe what as Dana's mentioning here that it really does have a lot to do with um where you are in your journey and where you are in your relationship with with movement and also I think in your relationship with food too and like which one how much they're driving each other um in a lot of ways and so I think one thing that everyone can kind of sit and think about a little bit if you're in this place where you're thinking to yourself I want to be more intentional about these areas of my life or I want to be more intentional about movement or I want to create, can I go and explore this or do I need to move away from it, right? Like another thing too is thinking, do I need to step way back? Um, there was a period of time when Dana stepped way back from from CrossFit um, and then you re-entered, you know, over time. And I think that's an important conversation for people to be having and to be thinking about because me a few years ago, the Peloton app would have been a real slippery slope. But right now, um, it's not because of where I am and my ability to kind of hear something that could be potentially something. And again, it's not egregious like in Orange Theory that Dana's talking about with calories in, calories out. It was something really simple that I just purely reframed and thought. And I remember having to remind myself, Christina, you don't have to take it that way. You can take it a different way instead and being able to have that kind of mental space to be able to do that is really important. So I think evaluating that um, for yourself is important. But yeah, I've really liked it and it's been kind of fun for me to explore it. And I like that there's a lot of variety on there so I can do different types of things. Um, and as like a mom with a toddler, sometimes it's hard to like make time to go take a class or to do something like this. And so having it super accessible is really nice too. This is something that is really great to reflect on your own. And if you have a therapist, talk about with them, right? So going back to this mirror, right? If you are very perfectionistic or all or nothing, or if you have a history of dieting, right? Take a look at your relationship with food. Those patterns aren't just showing up in your relationship with food. Most likely they're also showing up in your relationship with exercise, sometimes in your relationship with your career or work, you know, in your personal life. Alcohol. A whole bunch of different places. Great to work on with your therapist, specifically related to movement. I do a lot of this work with my clients because I work with a lot of athletes and also people who are exercisers or who identify as gym goers. And it ties in super closely with adrenal fatigue, which... I don't know if you all know, (laughs) this is something that I work on a lot and get emails every day from people on help me with adrenal fatigue. And the first thing we do is, so how much movement are you doing and why are you doing that movement? I'm really excited about this episode with Dr. Alexis Connison. 
If you haven't checked out her book or this is new to you, this whole concept is kind of new to you or you don't know where you want to start off or you want some guidance around like the basics around having like a non-diet life, her book is awesome yeah. for that. Very approachable, um, not yelling at you like some other anti-diet books in the space. Yeah, no, not ranty, like very action-oriented, executable. I really loved her book, and I think it's a really great foundational book for people to start off with. And we will, of course, link it in the show notes, and Alexis will talk about it and her approach and everything in the interview, which we will get to shortly. To start with, I don't know if incendiary is the right word, but we really just want to like go right for it. So there's a major misconception in the Hayes health at every size and intuitive eating worlds that it's just about eat eating, quote, whatever you want. And it's this is largely seen on social media as thin women eating donuts and showing their belly rolls and saying it's okay, right? Which is perfectly fine, but that's really not what it's about, right? So we know, us as practitioners, we know that it's about so much more than that. But so what do you tell your clients and how do you help them see beyond this very superficial belief system? In its essence, like health at every size is a social justice movement. It's not about helping, you know, individual people feel better about their body. It's certainly not about helping, you know, individual people who have body image issues, but are in socially accepted bodies feel better about their body. Although that's like a very nice side effect um, that comes from haze. Really, it's about centering people who've traditionally been marginalized in our culture and trying to make the world a safer place for them in terms of getting access to healthcare, access to health promoting behaviors, and just being treated with like very basic human dignity and respect. Um, so, you know, I think that the way that health at every size and body positivity has really gotten kind of taken in by social media has been problematic in the sense that it's like continued to center bodies that have already been centered and keep the bodies that have been marginalized off to the periphery. So that's kind of missing the point of, of what the movement's all about. Um, in terms of, you know, mindful eating being about um, eat whatever you want, whenever you want. I, I kind of agree with that. So I know a lot of clients are really taken aback. And, and I hear people on social media saying like, intuitive eating is not really just eat whatever you want, whenever you want. But like, I think mindful eating, which I teach, is about eating what you want, when you want it. But it's about learning a new system to tune into your body to actually hear like what you want and when you want it. And I think that we have to move away from diet culture to be able to really hear, hear that, to hear what our body, how our body's guiding us. I really love that you made that distinction because something that, that, um, I think about a lot and that I talk to my clients about when, when they kind of get to that point for intuitive eating or mindful eating around that thought process, I think about 
educating them on how do I marry what my body's desires are with what my body's needs are and then how do I learn to listen to what my body is saying and I think that's a lot of what you're talking about and sometimes my body is saying yeah I'd like to eat a donut you know and that's okay and other times my body's saying no I'd really like to eat this huge this like big delicious salad from someplace or whatever it is and I really like that you make that distinction that it actually is eating whatever you want whenever you want but the thing that's different is learning how to shut out the clutter in the in the mind and all that like that uh chatter that's going on that's trying to dictate how we should and shouldn't be eating yeah definitely and you know I'll, I'll I'll also add that I think that when people say you know, mindful eating is just about eating whatever you want, whenever you want it, or people who say, who, who aren't practicing mindful eating, and they're like, well, I already eat whatever I want, whenever I want it. Um, very often, they're not tuned, talking about being truly tuned into their body. So when we're stuck in diet culture, we tend to think that what we want is whatever we're not allowed to have. So when we you know, are like following a diet plan and then we kind of go off the rails, we say we're eating whatever we want, but really what we're eating is just like whatever's not a, allowed on the diet, like all those foods that we've categorized as quote unquote bad. Um, and that's not necessarily what you even want, but when we're stuck in that back and forth with dieting and restricting around food and labeling food as good or bad or you know permissible or off limits, we're eating just based on that dichotomy. Um, and it's hard to tell what you want when you're stuck in that paradigm. So I think that, you know, I hear diet culture is kind of like the chatter when you said like, how do we tune out the chatter? Um, diet culture, I think of as the chatter that that constant like sense of judgment around food criticism about what we're eating and our body, um, constant fear that we're not doing it right, that we're not good enough, the shame that, you know, all of that stuff. And so I, I explained it in the book a little bit like this, like, so we have a, what I call like an internal uh, GPS, like a, a, a navigation system kind of hardwired into our bodies. And that's our body's very sophisticated, highly evolved way of telling us what to eat, when to eat, you know, how much, all of that good stuff. Like we have that guidance inside. And what happens if you imagine being like in the car, listening to your GPS system, um, you can imagine a situation where maybe the GPS system is turned down, the volume is turned down low and you're like blasting really loud music, you know, really loud over it. So you can't hear what the GPS is telling you. It doesn't mean the GPS isn't there trying to guide you. It just means you can't hear it. And that's a little bit about how I think about how diet culture gets in the way because diet culture is like that really loud music that you're blasting. So when we can learn to just kind of turn down the volume on the music and actually hear the navigation system, it's guiding us clearly. And I think, you know, um, mindfulness is one of the most powerful tools we have to being able to both like turn down the volume on diet culture and turn up the volume on our body's internal navigation. And I think a huge part of this too is that not only is, I love your analogy, not only is the music too loud, is the diet culture music too loud, right? But the music is also telling you, don't listen to the GPS system because it will lead you astray, right? This is another like road bump or obstacle that people run into when they're trying to learn a more neutral approach to food and a non-judgmental approach to food. They're like, wait a minute. But I have either been told or basically absorbed, right, or been conditioned to believe 
I can't trust the signals of my body because if I do, they're going to lead me astray, right? And when we think of astray, it means I'm going to be super unhealthy and I'm just going to eat all of the no foods, right? Because when you're in the face of restriction, your body like doesn't like those rules right so it's always going to try and rebel against that and say like oh you told me I can't eat ice cream I want now all I'm going to think about is ice cream right so then you think and this can be a reality for some people but not everybody but you think that when you turn down that music or we peel back those rules that all you're ever going to want to eat is ice cream which when you finally get to the place of unconditional permission to eat all foods you're not going to want to eat ice cream all day every day because when you can start to finally listen to those internal signals your body's going to tell you hey eating ice cream all day every day doesn't feel very great and then you're naturally going to start to crave other things but you can't get to that point until you finally turn that music down. Exactly. And I think that that's one of the most common concerns that I hear when people are starting to move away from dieting and embrace more mindful approach with food is that they're like, well, I'm just going to sit on the couch and eat ice cream all day. And, you know, I, I totally understand that fear. And I think we have, many of us have a really long history of feeling out of control with certain foods because we've been restricting them. Um, even in the research, we look at, you know, how they kind of induce like addictive like behaviors in uh, the rats that they're studying. It's by restricting their access to the food. So, and the same thing, you know, happens to us when we're restricted, you know, when we feel that we're not, you know, we have to eat it now or never, or have all of this kind of baggage around certain foods, like, of course, we feel totally out of control around them. But when we can work to turn down the volume on that narrative and see the food as just food and really trust that it's always there, we can always have it and have as much of it whenever we want it, we start to be able to uh, discern a little bit more, like, when do we actually want it? And uh, how much do we want at each time when we know, like, I could, I could have this morning, noon and night, do I want it morning, noon and night, or maybe I just want it morning and night, or maybe just that, you know, so we're able to kind of um, get a little more information that's balanced and, and more attuned to our body. But I think if I can say, you know, I, I like to say there's no mistakes in mindful eating, but one of the most, you know, other places I really see people, um, you know, kind of giving, throwing in the towel too early is in this process is that people start to lessen their restrictions around food. And, you know, they'd say ice cream, for example, is, is a food that's, a, you know, um, has a lot of conflict around it for, for someone. Um, so they say, okay, I can have ice cream whenever I want it. And maybe like that first day, they eat a whole pint of ice cream or two pints of ice cream. And they're like, they come back in, they're like, I can't believe you told me to like go buy all this ice cream. I ate it all the first day. What's wrong with you? Like, see, I can't do this. I can't be trusted. I'm going back on Weight Watchers and like they're, you know, abandoned ship. And like, again, that's your body's really natural response to just kind of reacclimating from prolonged periods of restriction. But when you can stay with it and say like, okay, great. You had two pints of ice cream, go back to the store. This is, you know, I have often recommend my clients keep the food in the house with them. And like, I'm like, well, go back to the store get two more pints, maybe get four pints and see what happens and keep re restocking. And I've never worked with someone where they consistent, where they stuck with it and consistently were just eating ice cream all the time. Like it's never happened. Um, everyone fears it's going to happen, but eventually you start to say, okay, like I get it. The ice cream's there. I can have it whenever I want it. And like, actually like 
I'm really not in the mood for ice cream right now. So I'm going to have something else. Like it's hard to believe when you're on the other side, but most people do get to that point. But what a beautiful way of kind of having them reestablish trust with their body and being able to tune in to what that looks like. One of the things that um, we've noticed a lot, and as me and Dana both have a chronic health condition, is that a lot of times people don't feel like it's accessible to them. This idea of like, oh no, all foods aren't available to me because I have X, Y, and Z um, chronic health condition or like in me and Dana's case we both have celiac disease and you actually talk about this really directly in your book which is so great because a lot of people don't talk about mindful eating with chronic health conditions um so we really love that and in fact in you even quoted um mindful eating with a chronic health condition isn't much different than any other mindful eating your body provides value information valuable information that can guide your eating. I'd love for you to talk more about mindful eating and chronic health conditions and actually kind of showing people that it is really accessible. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that it's all about making choices. Mindful eating is all about allowing ourselves, you know, to have choices around foods. And just because we can choose any food we want, it doesn't mean that we have to eat every single food that's available to us. So as we start to learn about mindful eating, we often start to recognize like there's certain foods that make my body feel good. There's certain foods that just don't agree with me. There's foods that I like, there's foods that I don't like. And I think that when someone has a chronic health condition, their body is just talking to them sometimes in a loud way when something isn't sitting right. So you know, for example, if you have celiac disease, like most often, if you eat something with gluten in it, like your body's going to let you know really loud and clear that like that doesn't feel good. And that doesn't mean that certain foods are restricted or off limits or like you can't eat them, but you can make choices around whether like it's whether you want to eat it or not, knowing that like, I'm going to eat this, it's going to make me feel terrible. Um, is it, am I willing to, to do that? Like, do I want to make that choice? So I think it's just about gathering information about your body and making choices, um, whether, you know, th this is why I say it's not, I think we all do that. Um, it's just a little bit more intensified when you have a chronic condition. Yeah. And it's really interesting because if we took this out of context, right, if someone was coming from the diet mentality, they're like, wait, that just looks like another elimination diet. It's like, no, because you can't get to this point of mindful eating with chronic health conditions until you learn how to disassociate from diet culture, turn that loud music down, and give yourself unconditional permission to eat all foods, right? Like if you took this piece of advice and you were still in the diet culture mindset, it does look exactly the same, right? It's okay, I have celiac disease, I don't eat gluten, that's a rule, right? Whereas now it's like, I can eat gluten if I want to. Is it a good idea? Absolutely not, right? But I'm an adult and I can make decisions and I'm always allowed to eat it if I want to. But I know from personal experience that my body hates it when I eat gluten and it feels horrible for like not only days, we're talking like weeks up to long-term ramifications of like months, right? So I personally 
don't want to have to deal with that. So is it a rule? No, but it's a guideline that I choose to follow because it doesn't feel good. And you don't have to have celiac disease to have that kind of reaction to a food either, right? This can be with diabetes is one of the examples that you give in your book, right? If you have diabetes or prediabetes or anything like that, and you notice that when you eat foods that are higher in sugar or, you know, anything like that, that you get this like hyperglycemia and then hypoglycemia, so high blood sugar and then low blood sugar, and it feels awful, maybe let's figure out a way that you don't feel awful. Does that mean you can't ever eat those foods? No, absolutely not. You can always eat them, but then you can work with a licensed practitioner who specializes in non-diet nutrition, mindful eating with chronic health conditions in a neutral nutrition way, right? Like a non-weight centric way. And then you can figure out how to manage that on your own without making it a rule of, okay, I can only have this much carbohydrates or this much sugar every day because this is a diet culture rule that we're following. Yeah, exactly. And I think that oftentimes, you know, you might end up coming to the same place in terms of your preferred style of eating that, you know, would be coming from like a rule of like, I have celiac, so I can't eat gluten. But the internal process, I think, is very different and the psychological ramifications are very different because it's coming from a place of caring for yourself and from self-compassion versus this like, I'm not allowed to, which we tend to resist and fight back against. Um, I also, you know, I'll make a, a, another plug for people who have chronic health conditions or, you know, think have a lot of strong feelings about foods that their body can or can't tolerate. But I, I do highly recommend working with a non-diet dietitian because um, especially when we're recovering from eating disorders or in the midst of an eating disorder or just really intensely caught in diet culture, the stress around eating certain foods can make our body have a reaction that doesn't feel good. Um, and often that's, you know, not so much to do with this, with the food itself, as much as just the way that we're thinking about food. So I, I sometimes hear people say, well, my body can't eat this and that and it's a pretty restrictive diet. And as they uh, heal their relationship with food and often work with a dietitian, sometimes they're able to realize, well, actually I can eat that. It was just my fear around eating that that was making my stomach feel so upset or um, also like pairing certain foods together and things like that. That's the dietitian territory I stay away from. I think another big piece too is kind of having to work on your relationship with food first, you know, and working on the stress around that first because a lot of times we don't know what's actually causing what, you know, the more that we're able to get our body into rest and digest, we might have a lot of stuff resolved, but that doesn't mean that you don't possibly have at the same time GI issues or reactions to food they can be both you can have an disordered eating relationship or a full-blown eating disorder and at the same time have GI issues but let's find out what what's going on after we've identified the anxiety around food and worked through that and given ourselves permission and then see what's dangling afterwards you know see what's going on afterwards and then you can make it even more informed then you can actually hear what your body is really asking for and what it's really trying to tell you versus what your anxiety is telling you. And I think that's a huge distinction between the two things that I think a lot of people can get caught up on. Like sometimes the anxiety is running the show versus is my body really telling me this? Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things I love about mindfulness too is that the very practice kind of helps shift us into that rest and digest uh, part of our nervous system. I was amazed when I was researching for the book, one of the 
most interesting things that I learned as I kind of dived into more of the physiology around our appetite system was just like how real that connection is between stress and digestion. And literally when we're in a state of anxiety or we're in conflict around food or we're eating you know, from that place of like diet mentality of like, I should I eat this? Should I not eat this? And all of the stress and conflict that comes on our digestive system, you know, really like starts to shut down and we don't process the food and digest it as well as we do typically. So it's just incredible to, you know, as a psychologist, we always kind of know like stress impacts our body, but to understand more of the physiology of it, I thought was fascinating. While we do acknowledge that there can be like a very real gut bacteria imbalance or, you know, something else, a GI component, hormonal component that's going on. And there's the stress anxiety piece in general. And then also around foods, we're never saying like, oh, it's all in your head, right? Like how many patients have you had come to you that are like, well, I went to a GI doctor and they basically told me it was all in my head and they diagnosed me with IBS. And it's like, okay, great. But so that doesn't tell us what's actually going on or why it's going on. And they also basically just gaslit you, you know, they didn't mean to, but that's what ended up happening, right? So even just giving people that neutral nutrition and neutral like physiology look at like, no, 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 no. This mental emotional component that's happening is having a very real physical response with the gut brain connection and it's causing you or contributing to you having some either gut bacteria imbalances, low stomach acid, low digestive enzymes, like all of these different things that can be going on in the GI, which can be caused even originally from the stress and anxiety that we have around foods or from your relationship with food and eating disorder or, you know, being exposed to a parasite when you were traveling or something like that. It can be either or, or it can be all of the things together. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I think that when... When, when doctors say it's all in your head, I mean, that really can impact your gut, like what's going on in your head. It really does have an impact on our body too. So it's not, you know, it's not necessarily dismissive. Right. Well, so speaking of what's going on in our heads, right? We also wanted to talk about emotional eating today because we love the way that you talk about this in the book. So The first thing that we wanted to talk about is you say in the book, we eat for hunger and we eat for emotion and both are valid. And emotional eating is a tool that we can use compassionately without judgment. So can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of demonization around emotional eating and this idea that like food is fuel. And if we eat for any kind of emotional reasons, that's like weak and bad and, you know, really villainized. Um, And I, I just don't think that's the case. I, you know, emotional eating can be a completely valid coping mechanism. Um, eating for hunger is also obviously totally valid. I think that the thing to watch out for in terms of emotional eating is trying to understand if this is the only tool that we have to cope with our emotions. My concern as a psychologist is that sometimes our emotional needs get bypassed so that we're not actually like paying as much attention to our emotions because we're kind of always tamping them down or trying to distance ourselves from them. So I think that, you know, my hope in the book is to kind of provide some different ways to deal with our emotional experiences and with uncomfortable emotions so that we can, you know, not have to 
go to the same thing every single time because like our emotions are different and as completely awesome as food is it's not always the answer for everything it can't be everything to everybody so you know my hope is to kind of have you know eating be a choice to coping with emotions but also to have other choices including like just sitting with your feelings i think we as a culture have gotten really used to this idea that like something feels bad make it go away and life doesn't work like that um uncomfortable feelings are a totally normal part of the human experience and um i think there's a lot of value to just actually like opening ourselves up to being with our with our emotions and being with our feelings which tend to to come and go the fear is like that if i let in these you know this sadness or this anger or feel whatever it is i'm feeling like it's going to be overwhelming and it's never going to go away but normal emotions are transient they're transient experiences they come they kind of communicate what they need to for us they express themselves and then they pass through um i will differentiate that from um you know a psychiatric diagnosis like major depression or anxiety or something like that where the feelings don't uh, you know pass pass through and that's not something that you have to just sit with and and endure there's treatment for that for so for people who who really identify with emotional eating or feel like um this is something that they can relate to in a big way and like oh no I definitely feel like I I do this and I don't have a lot of tools available to me what kind of tools would you give and I know you give tools in the book um that break it down really great which I this is why we loved this section of it so much but I'd love for you to give people just a little snippet of something that they can do if they're struggling this is where I think a mindfulness practice is really powerful. And one of the things, you know, so the, my, the book is laid out as a 10 step plan. And the first part is really about kind of moving away from diet culture and understanding why that's a sham. And we have to kind of accept that that's not working to, to free ourselves to move away. And then the, the very next part, I start with this mindfulness and developing a mindfulness practice, because I think that this is a tool that not only changes the way that we relate to food and our bodies, but it ultimately changes the way that we relate to ourselves. And, um, so I think when we have a mindfulness practice, it helps us in moments where we're experiencing heightened emotions to be able to recognize that, to be able to pause and say, okay, I'm feeling this right now. Um, versus if we're not, if we, you know, if we're not mindful or for many of us, like we don't even realize we're in that emotional state until we've gotten swept down the river with it. And we're like, you know, really far, far into it. So the more that we can uh, observe what's going on, the more that we can make conscious choices around how we want to respond to it. So, you know, and this is where I say choices come in and eating can be one of them, but I think there's something very different about recognizing, okay, I'm feeling really sad right now. How do I, what's the best way I want to deal with this? Do I want to, uh, call a friend? Do I want to just kind of cry it out? Do I want to go pull the covers, you know, lay in bed with the covers over my head? Do I want to eat? Do I want to listen to music? Like to have choices of things that we can do of how we want to respond to our emotions. And even if we choose food and, um, you know, eat to comfort ourselves, again, totally valid option. 
having it been a conscious choice often takes a lot of the like self-reproach out of it. So, you know, I think it's very different than somebody who is sad and doesn't even realize it and goes and is eating and doesn't even realize, you know, why they're eating and then gets stuck in that shame cycle of like, oh, why did I eat that? I wasn't even hungry. What's wrong with me? You know, we start beating ourselves up. And um, so I think that it's really just about making compassionate choices attuned to like what we most need in, in each moment. And, you know, I also want to say when it comes to emotional eating, I have a ton of respect for the ways that food has served us in the past. And I think that it's incredible how people have used food to cope with trauma, with just really awful things that have happened to them, with just everyday life as a child where they weren't able to have other resources. Um, so, you know, again, I think there's a lot of shame that tends to get attached to emotional eating. And I, I, I think, it, you know, we can really shift that perspective and just look at like, how incredible it is that people are resilient and like able to find something that's gotten them through those difficult times. A really easy example for people to relate to with this is over the past year and a half when we've been this global pandemic. We saw so many people coming to all the different kinds of helping professions, you know, and when people are stressed, they either use food as a coping mechanism to eat or they're like I just can't eat it all hello gut brain connection at work but so then there's all this guilt around it and everything and it's like whoa, whoa, whoa let's reframe this right like during this time people are using whatever coping mechanism is available to them anything that you used or engaged in right was and is a type of coping mechanism. Some, pe some people used restriction, right? Some people used eating for comfort. Some people used exercise. Some people used alcohol, right? Some people use ordering takeout, online shopping. Like all of these things are all coping mechanisms. And I find that when we explain it in, again, a more neutral way, it's like, oh... My body was just trying to protect me, right? And then we think about, it's interesting, there's like an, a hierarchy of like social acceptability with all these coping mechanisms based on what it does with our weight. End all be all, everybody's afraid of gaining weight because of all the ramifications that we see in our society from people, how they are treated when they gain weight. And so when we think of emotional eating, the biggest reason that it's demonized is because it's assumed that it's going to be bad for your health and that you're going to gain weight. But it's like, well, wait a minute. What if this is just a protective mechanism again, right? And so giving yourself that permission that it is okay to use this as a tool. All of these things we just mentioned are tools. You know, when we think about like self-care or self-preservation, it really is all for the same end of your body's just trying to protect you. So while we can acknowledge that this is one of the tools, I love how you say in the book is like, we don't want this to be the only tool because it's not actually helping you solve or figure out how to process those emotions. So unless it is something like anxiety or depression, right? Doing something else in addition to eating or instead of eating can help you process through. And then of course, there's other things like therapy and medication and you know anything that people need we just need more permission slips in the world that's like you're just trying to take care of yourself and however you do it is okay as long as you're not hurting anybody else yeah exactly exactly and I think it's like amazing to look at the things that are 
you know, kind of acceptable <laughs> coping things. Like, you know, I think it was so normalized that people were like drinking a lot more than usual in the pandemic. And somehow that's seen as like more acceptable than eating more than usual to cope with the pandemic. I think that, you know, and obviously I think that um, fat phobia underlies a lot of the fears there. But yes, ultimately, I don't think there's any one right choice about how to best take care of ourselves. My hope as a psychologist is to just kind of give people tools to be able to choose for themselves what feels best and what, what's going to be the best way to care for themselves in that moment. I have to say, and I have to say we are, you know, thin, able-bodied women and white women right saying this and so I was thinking too around I think a lot of people who potentially could be listening could be saying well that's okay for you to say because you guys look a certain way and you don't have to deal with the social justice issues and discrimination that I have to deal with and things like that so one of the things that I've been thinking about is around how there can be limitations for people following women that look like us and and on, for Hayes advocacy and knowledge, especially when it comes to emotional eating and things like that. So too, because like you said, like the fat phobia is intertwined in it and that's leading the way, right? Saying, oh, this has to be resolved because if I don't lose weight, then I'm not gonna be X, Y, and Z or I'm not gonna be able to fit in the plane and I'm not gonna be able to fit on the plane seat or be able to jump on the trampoline with my child. And there's all these different layers that go into it. So that are natural and very real um, reasons to feel like, oh, this is something that's eminent for me that needs to be resolved and that weight loss has to be a part of it. So how do you suggest people gain more of a deeper understanding of that health at every size really is health at every size and that emotional eating and mindful eating is accessible to you and how it applies to them? So first of all, I think that if, you know, most of your learning is coming from people who look like us, um, that's something that I would try to shift, you know, and this is what we started off talking about is that continually people who are in marginalized bodies have continued to be marginalized in the very same movement that they created. It, and so I think that, you know, go follow fat activists, follow people with lived experience, follow black and brown and you know bipoc people and people who are who who look different and who have different kinds of lived experiences because that's really where we're going to learn the most from um, but ultimately you know i believe that everyone has body autonomy and i totally understand you know i think the 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 desire to want to lose weight is completely natural for people of all sizes but especially for fat people because they're living in a body that that has in a very real way been stigmatized and creates a lot of barriers in their life, not because of their body, but because of fat phobia and, and weight stigma. So, you know, everybody gets to make choices about what they want to do with their own body. Unfortunately, I, you know, don't think that there's really a good way for people to lose weight and keep it off long term. That's one of the things that I thought was important to spell out at the beginning of my book, because I think that as long as we're kind of think that, you know, okay, these people are telling me not to lose weight, but I need to lose weight. And, and there's a, and a feeling that there's a way to do that, right? We stay stuck in diet culture, but I think the science is really clear that body weight is, is pretty stable. And um, especially to lose significant amounts of weight to, um, 
you know, like escape a stigmatized body, it, it tends to not be sustainable for the vast majority of people, like over 90% of people. So, you know, again, I think all we can do is inform and uh, give people the tools and resources to be able to make their own choices around what they want to do with their body. 100%. So in that line of thinking, as a practitioner, we would love for you to talk about this. So in a Instagram post that you had done not too long ago, you posted that if weight inclusive care is against evidence-based guidelines in medicine, maybe it's time we reevaluate the guidelines, right? So we are 100% with you here. And we would love if you could share a little bit more about what inspired this post and this thought process, because it comes off as a real call to action. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that inspired the post was just seeing the pushback that, you know, people get, especially so um, my husband is a physician and endocrinologist who's recently become more vocal in the Hayes space. And like the pushback that he gets from other physicians on social media saying it's dangerous to tell people that it's okay to be fat. I mean, I've gotten the same messages too, but I think it comes different in the medical profession. And like, if you're telling people that they don't have to lose weight, you're, you're not following evidence-based guidelines. You're not doing evidence-based care. Right, which which I think is implying that if you're not telling people to lose weight, you're a bad doctor, right? You're harming people, you're doing something dangerous. Um, and doctors have had like um, been reported. I think even um, Natasha's the Fat Doctor UK like was reported to her medical license, you know, licensing committee or whatever. Uh, for promoting these messages about body acceptance and speaking out against weight loss. So I think that it is true that if we're not recommending weight loss, that's against evidence-based care. And I think it really speaks to how messed up like the medical guidelines are around this. And I go into this a bit in my book as well, that there's so much commingling commingling of the financial interests of the weight loss industry and the pharmaceutical industry with the people who come up with these quote unquote evidence-based guidelines that are often going against the evidence. Like when the American Medical Association in 2013 made the decision to classify quote unquote obesity as a disease, it went in direct opposition to the committee, the advisory committee that they had gathered and enlisted to um, compile the evidence and compile the research and guide them on this decision. And the committee said, the advisory committee said, like, we don't think that this should be considered a disease. The research isn't there. It doesn't support it. And it was one of the few times that they disregarded their own advisory committee and continued to move forward with classifying obesity as a disease. And I know that the people who made those decisions Many of them, you know, who were on the AMA committee to make those decisions, many of them were also paid consultants to um, weight loss companies, to the pharmaceutical industry. And we see this again and again and again. I mean, you could almost predictably look at like any of the guidelines um, that are endorsing like weight loss or um, about, you know, treating quote unquote obesity. And if you look up the financial disclosures of the authors, almost every single one um, tends to have really you know, intense financial con conflicts of interest. They're basically on the payroll of uh, pharmaceutical companies and weight loss companies. So I think that it's really, 
high time that we examine this and you know look at getting the, this kind of money and conflicts of interest out of the medical recommendations because it's really at least really confusing for people. I mean, I think like when something like the American Medical Association says obesity is a disease, people think that's a science-based evaluation, that that's a recommendation that's coming with the best interests of the people that doctors treat in mind. And it's not, it's, an it's a decision that is really profiting um, big business, big pharma, weight loss industries. And it, it's not in the best interest of humans that doctors are treating. You know, another thing that I was thinking about while you were chatting about this too, is that a lot of times people don't consider the fact that a lot of research that is evidence-based research is not brought to publication because it goes against this, um, the medical guidelines or these other quote-unquote evidence-based care in medicine. And so I know that there have been instances, I think relatively recently, where re research was rejected. Um, and not able to get published by, you know, the JMA or um, in the NIH um, platform and stuff for research because it went against this. And I know that, like you said, there's people getting um, getting reported for, for, for going against this. Yeah, I agree. And I have the privilege of, like, having been educated in um, – like understanding research and medical science. And when I read through the research, it just, it tells such a different story than what is being, I mean, than even what is getting picked up by the media about the very same study um, and what the interpretations of things are um, from like, they're even from the researchers themselves. Um, and then of course, like what's being transmitted top down from the medical organizations, which really are seen as a source of authority. But, you know, I think medical organizations have a long history of not getting things right. I mean, we have to remember that it was, um, you know, in not so distant times that homosexuality was considered a diagnosis in the DSM. You know, I think that was certainly in my lifetime. Um, so we don't always get things, you know, the medical, the, the authorities don't always get things right. And I think it's really important that we hold them accountable and advocate for change because that is how we will come with a more equitable system. And I think that, you know, honestly, I think that so much work needs to be done even ground, you know, like in the early stages of medical training to be providing physicians with, uh, weight, you know, information about weight inclusive care care, like in medical school, in residency programs, that's where it needs to start because they just get indoctrinated into this belief system of, you know, this, you know, fat is bad mentality and the science just isn't there to support it or to certainly not to support that, that recommending weight loss is like a sustainable idea for anybody. Right. Because if you look into the research for that, it overwhelmingly shows that it's not sustainable for 90 whatever percent of people, right? But they choose to ignore that. Exactly. I just saw something <laughs> that came out that someone posted today, I think from like the Australian government or something saying that they're considering the fact that weight law, that the, you know, people will not sustain weight loss long-term to be like class A evidence, you know, like we have established this, like weight loss is not sustainable. 
I've been really inspired with what's happening in dietetics, though, seeing like a lot of RDs coming out of school, really interested in haze and intuitive eating and not willing to, um, you know, conform to the weight normative model that like even a lot of the authorities in that field are still promoting. It's a problem. So now we just need to change the curriculum so that people don't have to basically learn the reverse, right? You have like one set of knowledge for the tests so you can get your license and then an entirely different set of knowledge that you use in clinical practice to actually help people. <laughs> yeah, but it's inspiring to see like a whole crop of people coming out um, questioning questioning the status quo. I think that's a really important place to start. And I think that those other changes will happen because it's being demanded from within the field. Well, one good thing social media has done, right? If nothing else. <laughs> well, Alexis, thank you so, so much for coming on today. If you could please tell people, we've alluded to it a couple of times, but tell people not only where they can find you, but where they can find your book. So the Diet Free Revolution, so you should be able to find the book on bookshelves everywhere. It should be available wherever books are sold. Uh, you can find me. My website is drcottison.com that has information about uh, me and my group practice. I have a small fat positive group therapy practice in New York City. Um, and you can also find me on Instagram at the anti-diet plan. Um, and if you want information, I also have a six-week online course uh, called the Anti-Diet Plan, and that's a mindful eating, weight-inclusive mindful eating program, and you can find information about that at theantidietplan.com. Hey friends, it's Dana, and thanks for listening to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your family and friends, subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and if you can, we would absolutely love it if you left a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps spread the word so more people can find the show and learn how to break out of diet culture, the body image spiral, and find a more peaceful relationship with food in their bodies with wholehearted eating. If you're interested in learning more about how you can work with me or Christina for one-on-one -on -one nutrition counseling or checking out our self-paced courses, head over to wholeheartedeating.com, and we'll see you again here next week.